that as we open the word today that we've come prepared and you probably hear that kind of stuff in different seasons of life are you prepared are you prepared and I think the reality of preparedness is expectation what are we expecting when we gather together on the Lord's day and we hear the word read to us when we sing the truth of Christ. It's interesting as I read out of John 13 this morning. And then we sing this first song that we sang out of the hymnal. That it just recapitulates the very thing that Jesus is talking about. And so when we see the instructions of the scripture about what we are to do when we come together in the gathering. As the saints, as a covenant family of faith. We sing and encourage and pray and praise and hear and learn and then lean on this learning and lean on these graces if we can say those things and understanding that allow us to be the people of Christ in the world that is not of him allow us to not fall prey to the norms of the culture to the religiosity but we are able to really become Christ followers in simplicity, in purity. Not imposing on each other our ideologies or our politics or our morals or our ethics, but rather holding fast to the clarity of what Scripture teaches and loving each other unconditionally therein. Today, I will finish up my little beautiful church mini-sub-series out of the mini-series out of the series of 1 Timothy. And I want to talk today about biblical fellowship. Because I believe part of the church being the buttress of the truth, the house of God, the family of faith, and the instruction that we're going to see, you know, moving into September, Paul teaching the elders... Timothy and the subsequent elders of all history to instruct the church in, we need to recognize what we're being taught to do as individual believers and what we're being taught to do as corporate believers and how those things are supposed to be understood and applied in our lives. Fellowship is one of those words, and you've heard me talk about it before. So we've already had other things that I want to say that I've already talked about. For example, prayer out of 1 Timothy chapter 1 where he says, I instruct you to pray then for all people, kings and those in high places, people in authority, all types of people. He's already talked about worship, about the heart of worship, the reality that because of what the gospel teaches us and who the gospel is which is Jesus Christ the righteous we are able to come together as recipients of grace looking through the lens of grace to one another in our lives to not feel as though we're better than anyone else but that we are all forgiven by the mercy of God through the death and the blood of Christ so we worship from that we show the worth of God through our life through our mind through our actions and our intentions as we fight the good fight of faith as we know that there is spiritual battles going on that are effective against us because our flesh desires those very things that tempt us. We see a lot of different things and as the instruction of the New Testament teaches us it's very easy 
to internalize those things and apply every specific didactic or every specific instruction to ourselves personally. It's very simple to do that. It's very easy to do that so that God's letter to Timothy becomes James Tippin's instruction or your instruction. And it is if we do not lose sight of what the instruction is for and to whom it is written and to what end it is written. See, if we start out a journey, if I said to you, okay, are you ready? I want you to get there in less than four seconds. Ready and go. Everybody's looking at me like I'm an idiot. Why? Because you don't know where you're going. There's no instruction prior to the gun, to the starting line. There's no finish line. So some of you may run to the table to get your, we should do that, scatter drill to do the Lord's table. Some of you may run to the piano. Is it time to play Name That Tune or musical chairs? Some of you may run outside. Some of you may run to the bathroom. You don't know where to go. But if I say to you, I need you all to go out the exit over here to my left, your right. And as you do that, very quickly on the count of three, and then everybody stands up. You know where you're going. And every path will be different because every one of you are in a different seat. But the destination is going to be the same. And we're going to cross paths. We're going to all be in the same line by the time we get to the wall on the other side of the room. Beloved, the Bible in like manner must be understood with clear direction. And so one of the reasons that I have taken four or five weeks out to talk about the church and church membership and life together is so that we keep focused what it is the New Testament is teaching us. To know that while these are instructions specifically and authentically to the elders of the church throughout history, we are also the church, and we are getting instruction on how the elders ought to instruct the church, so you get to have the teacher's notes, see. Because nothing's hidden in the economy of grace. Nothing's hidden from the body, any part. There's no special knowledge or wisdom that the elders have that the church can't also have. But there is a, an epidemic of ignorance when it comes to how to read and simply apply the scripture. And the, and the Bible teaches us how we should read and apply the scripture. And beloved, I'll tell you this, is that, you know, 20 years ago, well, 15 years ago even, I thought that the best way to establish that understanding was academia. And then some 16 years later... <laughs> I realized, man, I spent a lot of time and money when I could have just kept reading the Bible. What is the church to do with fellowship? With fellowship. In the scripture in Hebrews, Paul instructs the Hebrews, you're not going to be there, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, so just hear what I'm saying and don't get bogged down in Hebrews. But in Hebrews, Paul instructs the Jewish Christians to not forsake the assembly. Easy prescription. Why? Because in the assembly, in the discipline and the obedience of gathering, God's promises are fulfilled for his church in daily life. There is a very ignorant 
assumption that me, myself, and my Bible is sufficient for the graces of God in the aspects, every aspect of my life. It's not true. The Bible wasn't written to the individual. The New Testament wasn't written for the sake of individuality. We learned over the last few weeks that the body is made up of every part and every part is the body. And you've heard my ridiculousness in saying what good is a bag of eyeballs or a bag of toenails. It's gross. But yet by our individualism, by our myopic arrogance, so many believers isolate themselves to the point that they feel superior for they seem purer when they're rebelling and denying the very promises of Christ for their lives. Because in some sense, they have decided that being apart from the body, for this reason, that reason, or this person, or that person, you see how antichrist that is? Is better for them. So we are here to learn. And Bible stories are important. Narratives are important. Because through all of them, we get to see Christ and the gospel Grace, sovereign and free, we get to see the, the, the glory of God revealed and His sovereignty over every teeny detail of everything. Birds coming from one place to another, a man traveling from here to there, this happening, that happening, wind, rain, sand, whatever it may be. God is sovereign and powerful over it all. And these things teach us and drive us to the reality that we can trust Him. And He has revealed Himself solely and only now through the Word of God for our benefit. So if the Word of God reveals to us the promises of God are conditioned upon these things, then we can take it to the bank. To ignore or to disobey those prescriptions is to say to God, I know better than you. God have mercy. And he does for his people. Of how many things just this week that I have listed in my conscience. <laughs> that I have better wisdom than God concerning now don't gasp, because you do too. We have better wisdom than God when we refuse to seek His Word first. Fellowship is an imperative of the body. But fellowship is not about getting together, having fun, and eating. Fellowship can take place in those things. Fellowship is not about finding worldly affinities and enjoying the time together. Fellowship can take place during those things. But the promise of God to his church to restore our joy, to teach us how to do the work that he's called us to do, to be obedient to him, to learn to love and to live out life as a family of faith, those things are always conditioned upon our gathering together each week, at least during the Lord's Day assembly. Because that's the only compulsory thing that you have on you, beloved, as far as getting together, is this. If we do other things, great, not required, sometimes can not be beneficial. But if we're not doing this, then doing anything else is just moot. 
for the saints. Fellowship is not enjoying time together as much as we enjoy time together sometimes. I can enjoy time together with anybody who likes anything that I like. Is that not true? Total stranger? I would say Walmart checkout, but I haven't been to Walmart checkout in a long time. That's when 9mm was like 11 cents a round. Maybe it was 9 cents. But let's just say you're there. Somebody you've never met. Somebody you'll never see again. Huh? That's a good price, isn't it? Absolutely. Where do you do? I'll do that. Well, great. What do you... And you just have a good time in that three minutes enjoying conversation about things you love. See you later, liar. You know? Why do we say that? We're not going to see these people later. We might see them later at the gas station outside the store. We might see them later at the food, at the uh, grocery store. I started to call the, the food store at the grocery store. We might see them later when whatever we bought goes on sale again. But we enjoyed the time. Well, I had a great conversation. I had a great opportunity. I had a great experience. We can go to the movie theater and we can all clap at the end. Not ever seeing the face of the person that was with us. That's not fellowship. But we can enjoy the time. So fellowship is not about enjoying the time. Fellowship is even, isn't even about loving one another. Emotionally. Loving one another uh, in a... In a, in a in a sense of caring or empathy. Though true fellowship requires empathy and love because it's the motivating force behind the actions or for the actions, of the actions. It's not the point. The point in true fellowship according to the scripture is this. Turn to Acts chapter 2. And there's a lot here. And one day I want to teach through Acts. I think it would be great. It's on my calendar. just don't know if it'll work out next year or not. I want to start at verse 29 and go to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to talk specifically about, you know, the verses from 42 through 47. I think I left off two verses, the specific two verses that are important in my head, but here we go. Verse 20, excuse me, yeah. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Because he was not guilty of sin. For David says concerning him, Quote, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, 
I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He, the Messiah Christ, has poured out this for you that you yourselves, excuse me, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, this is conversation with thousands of people. It's not like they took turns, had megaphones, microphones. This is the sentiment, the conversations that took place amongst the crowd as the apostles and the other believers were there. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, change your thinking. Repent. That's what that means. It doesn't mean stop sinning. It has nothing to do with that in this context here. Though thinking you can get to heaven through any other means but Grace is a sin. In this context, change the way you're thinking. What question do they ask? What can we do? He says, you need to change your mind about that. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ. This is the point of the sermon, but I have to make it clear. Be found immersed in Christ. He wasn't saying you just get in that water, you're saved. It's not about that water. It's about the essence of being found in Christ. I read out of John 13, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And the Spirit is in you. You are in Christ. We are baptized into Christ, into the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will have the paraclete, the Spirit of truth, the gift of God. For this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So here is the gospel in a nutshell in public preaching that God will call his people to himself. For he has promised to them and them alone and their children, generations of his elect, that salvation is his doing. And when they are found in Christ, it is that He has called them to Himself. And in verse 40, here's the, here's the reality of this narrative being so teensy and, and empty in the vastness of time, but yet so rich and full in its simplicity. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them. So He kept preaching and explaining and teaching And he says to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What is this crooked generation? 
the high religious rulers, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the priests, the self-righteous. So those who received his word were baptized, were publicly put into the water as a symbol, as a picture of dying in Christ and being raised in Christ. And that day were added to their number around 3,000. It's First Baptist Church service. They counted everybody. There's probably only 1,200, but they counted them coming and going, so they added a little bit for error. 3,000. No, I'm joking. It's not an exact number. It says about 3,000, so give or take a few. And this is God saving his people through the public proclamation of the gospel. Something I'm working on in my own life. Instruction to the elders of the church. Do the work of an evangelist. (laughs) Okay. Always strive to that. Always sharing the gospel. Numerous times a week it just comes natural. It's like preparing for food or washing your clothes. It's just something you do. Do the work of an evangelist includes, is included in the context and the call of the elders in their oversight of the church. In their teaching to the church. It's not like, boom, start playing the piano, now we got our evangelistic opportunity. That's just not the point. But to proclaim Christ for the sake of the church is also to proclaim Christ for the sake of the elect who have come, not yet come to see. And at the end of all of that, Beloved, we are not lacking in information and training modules on how to assimilate people into the local church in America. We are not lacking with experts and pundits who not even, don't even have a local church family of their own, but they are traveling salesmen of good, what's the word I'll say here, snake oil. On how to truly make disciples. So here's Peter preaching there in Jerusalem. Having received the power of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. In unity they go out and proclaim the gospel. Things have happened. Miracles have taken place. Power has been visually Observed, The glory of God has been revealed in the death of this son of his who is now raised to life, walking and talking amongst them. And he ascends and everyone who is remaining goes and tells the story. You see. And as the story is told, God is in the business of making his people see. And there's no response necessary. Everybody who got saved, raise your hand. Anybody who wants to be saved, raise your hand. No peeking, you know, because God knows if you peek, it invalidates your response. No response necessary. The response is in the life of the believers. The response is in that which is historically displayed and then Spiritually prescribed through the teachings of the apostles to the church and to the elders of the church and to the 
different types of churches. What happens when someone comes to be in the body of Christ supernaturally and spiritually, when they become baptized into Christ? They are immediately required and requested to be part of a local assembly. There's not one instance in the Bible, in the New Testament, where a group of people heard the gospel, received the gospel, made known that they did believe the gospel in some way, and then were told to go along their merry way, chip, chop, chip, see you later, lie. No, the believing ones were gathering together in discipline. The believing ones were connected together. See, some people go, well, i got to find the right believing ones. Yes, you do. There are a lot of different so-called believing ones. But, beloved, there is no congregation without error. There is no congregation without unregenerate people. There is no congregation without heresy. There is no congregation without sin. And the point of covenant devotion and discipline is to listen to Christ, to do as He's called us to do, and to give Him glory and praise when He works out everything else. So what is fellowship? Fellowship, biblically, koinonia, and different variations of the term, means they have all things in common. Now think about this for a second. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions. And they were selling their belongings. And they were distributing those proceeds to all of one another as any had need. And day by day, attending Jewish temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with their community. And the Lord added to their number daily those going to, who were being saved and for clarity's sake who were being born again. So here is biblical fellowship. First, we see that fellowship is a devotion. What is it? A devotion to. A devotion to the apostles' teaching. Now keep in mind, there were 13 apostles. The addition of Matthias to replace Judas and then the call of Paul. Okay, Paul was not yet here. So there were 12. And so here we have the apostles, 12 men who had 
15,000 church members among them. <laughs> the church had already grown. 3,000 more added in one sermon for Peter. And then all of a sudden, the next day, people's, people's lives are a little inundated. They were used to that type of mass because the temple would hold them. The temple was the centerpiece. of It wasn't open on, Sunday, on Saturday. It was open every day. It was something to do all the time. People gathered there. They prepared for that Sabbath day to worship. They were devoted to that way of life out of reverence, fear, and other things. The gospel set them free, but yet it was still the place to be. Who were teaching in the temple? Lots of folks. The priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody else there out there preaching against the way, preaching against the Messiah, preaching against Jesus, preaching against Jesus' people, and Jesus' people were there to just be able to gather together in a normative way so that they could hear the truth and learn a little more and ask questions. Q&A is an invention of Jesus, not present-day pastors. The AMA, I guess. Ask me anything. And so they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So how were they devoted to the apostles? How could tens of thousands of people devote themselves to the teaching of 12 simple men? How can those 12 simple men teach that many? They didn't. They taught others who taught others who taught others. And then these congregations went into the homes, and these homes, every home had an elder, and every home had deacons who oversaw all the teaching that went on there so that people would get the truth and correct the error and just put on track misguided assumptions or philosophies. Because everybody was inquiring what it is that this Jesus was and what it is that he did and accomplished because not all of that is able to be digested in one sitting. And the foreknowledge and the understanding, the prior knowledge of the Jews was definitely Christocentric but they couldn't see it without the Spirit of God. In our culture that we live in now in the United States, we have what most people would call a Christocentric culture, but it is not. It's an antichrist culture. And I'm talking about the Baptist churches, the Reformed churches, the Sovereign Grace churches, and every other denomination or non-denomination therein. It's not Christocentric. It's not centered on the truth of the Christ of the Bible. It's centered on the Christ of culture. The Christ of culture in the first century was a hero warrior to come and take the throne of David and push out the enemies that we may be a holy priesthood yet again. Not the suffering lamb who laid his life down because his kingdom was not of this world. See, Christ created the world in order to redeem his people from it. Not to establish it for them. Theocracies are not biblical as a promise. Israel's not the point. It's the shadow. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Timothy is being taught by Paul in these letters that we're going through how the elders are supposed to do that. We'll see in 2 Timothy, entrust to reliable men who will teach others also. Make sure they're qualified. 1 Timothy, elders need to be qualified, deacons need to be qualified, this is the ministry that they have, this is what I command you to do in the midst of great frustration, false teaching, division, hatred, backbiting, put it to rest, do that which is prescribed. 
do that which is prescribed. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One of the main points of the assembly is that we devote ourselves to the teaching of the New Testament. That's the point. We are to be a teaching church and we are to be a learning church. And sometimes the principles and the way they're taught, I grow as a teacher and I slide backward as a teacher. And by the mercy of God, I go, wow, nobody's understanding anything I'm trying to say. James, you're an idiot. Just be simple. And if I have a conference call with a bunch of my Ph.D. buddies, uh, you'll probably know it on a Sunday. Because <laughs> my vocabulary goes up. The syllables of my words start to hit six and seven instead of two and three. It doesn't matter. We're to be a learning and a teaching church. The elders are to learn and the elders are to teach. We don't, we don't wake up after the call go, boom, and this burn in our brains just gives us all knowledge. We learn. We make mistakes because we are thinking people living in a fallen sense. But you're redeemed by the grace of God. So, beloved, you need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Not the theological rigor. Not historical theology. Those are hobby things. Not what this guy says and that guy. That's, that's cool. What does the Bible say? How dare we go beyond the Bible when we don't have the Bible yet? I've never met a man yet in the circles that I have walked in over the last two decades who can't give some highbrow theological treatise on something. And the labels therein. But yet when I say, will you, will you just describe in your own words the sense in which the church ought to live together being baptized into Christ? Can you express how you live that out as a believer with other people? And the best they can do is, yeah, I got a systematic theological class I do. Okay. Glad to know I play Monopoly. So they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what we do. First, what does that imply? We're together and to the fellowship and to being together. To having all things in common, which includes the truth. The truth. And when the truth is not found, or a false truth, or a side truth or a lie or a mistake or an error or a heresy or whatever word you want to call it is found among us we just devote ourselves to the apostles teaching and God corrects us and there's nothing else to do beyond that well now because yesterday you said this and today now you say different you're now saved you were lost yesterday hogwash that's garbage that's a cult yes if you have believed a false gospel and you come to the truth, yes, you're born again, finally. But theological error isn't proven that you're unconverted. And does it matter? Do you believe today the truth of the gospel? Or are you still holding on to some tether of something you did? Are you holding on to some tether of something you believed with better clarity? You know, when I became a student of Scripture rather than just a student. There was two or three years there that I'm like, I was born again today. 
I must, this is when the Spirit shows, because there's some epiphanies that you have, and then you start to look back and you go, things that you never even think about, the implications, you go, oh my goodness, this was wicked. I must have been lost. And I very well could have been. You very well could have been. God doesn't go, boom, this is the day that you were saved. You know the day you were saved? The day Jesus said it was finished. When was the day you believed? To the praise of His glorious grace. You are His workmanship. One of the greatest idols in America, in the American church, is a love affair with salvation experiences, a love affair with theological distinctions, considering them salvation experiences. And people that want to bark about that and say, yeah, but you can't say, listen, folks, if we have to explain every, if we have to have a caveat with every breath we take, these people aren't ours. That's unloving, and it's unbiblical. The gospel is freedom unto life, not a burden of worry. No believer rests under the shackles of worrying that they have the gospel wrong. But don't we have those seasons? When some knucklehead comes along and tries to press that out of us? Things we've never thought about, things that we shouldn't even be taught. That's the context of 1 Timothy. Things that shouldn't be taught. What do we do? We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Not to Nehemiah. Good stuff there, but you better read it in light of Paul. You better read Nehemiah in the light of the gospel. Not to prove a point. The points are best proven by the apostles. And to the teaching of the apostles, and to the fellowship of the church, to the breaking of bread. That's literally eating together because they had need. They had need. Feeding each other. And then at the end of the meal, taking what's left and remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. You understand that? That's what this table is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the scraps at the end of the meal for us to remember Christ. But we don't have those kind of needs anymore, do we? And to the prayers. See, we ponder more than we pray and we wonder why God's promises aren't being fulfilled. I am the world's best at it. I can have five years of conversation and a good 15 minutes in my head. I can role play when I go to sleep and wake up angry at people who I've never even talked to. And if I'm really good at it, I can stew about it on my way to Statesboro. I can't believe he would have said that to me. <laughs> That's insanity. But it's what our sin nature does. Instead, we take the index cards out, and we have the Monday index card, and the Tuesday index card, and the Wednesday index card, and the Thursday index card. And sometimes we're going, oh my gosh, I've got to pray for three cards today, because the last few days have been hard, and I've forgotten to eat or pray. And we pray for these people. And then we leave them with the Lord. We pray for one another, and we leave the outcome to the Lord. And then where there is something we can do, we meet those needs. But we pray. And when the church of now 3,000 new members 
came along, they were received by the apostles and the elders and the deacons and others, which, you know, there weren't really any deacons at this point. We see that over in Acts chapter 6. We see that what they did is they took it at face value. We preach the gospel. You said you believe it. Let's go. You're the church. We're going to baptize it. How long did it take to baptize 3,000 people? I don't know. But then they devoted themselves to be under the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to be together intentionally, to eat together, to do the Lord's table together, to pray together, and all came upon every soul. See, this is where we go, isn't it? Yes, let's go back to first century and be the first church, and I want to be like this. I want to experience this. I want to see miracles and wonders and signs coming through the apostles. Beloved, the apostles are gone. The apostles' bodies are decomposing in the ground. As Peter already said about David's body, we got his grave. We can go look at it. Jesus, he's not there. So how do we how do we have all? We've got acts. We've got this is all we need. We can look at this. We can look at what the Lord did. We can go to the Gospels and we can see what God has done. We can see, we can go to Peter's writing, who alludes to creation, who alludes to the Exodus, who alludes even to pop culture. You know, every day has a pop culture. There was a pop culture. What does that mean? Popular culture. There was a pop culture in first century. It was literature and oratory and whatever the heck they were talking about. Pop culture for Jews was high religion and hedonism. Power and authority. Self-righteous piety. Pop culture for the Greeks and the Gentiles, depending on the culture, it was renaissance, it was creativity, it was poetry, it was philosophy, it was, you know, I think therefore I am. Let's hear one of these wise thing people talk about these things. It's, you know, TED Talks. I love TED Talks. I can literally sit there and watch them for hours. Just, I don't care what they are, just I love to listen to somebody say something about anything well so how do we have all we read the word of God we devote ourselves to the apostles teaching who teach us about the great power of God who has established not yet in writing during this actual narrative but soon who will write the gospels who will write the letters who will leave us this permanent divine work of holy writ coupled with the prophets of antiquity now we have the full measure that's what the word canon means we have the full measure of God's glory and revelation in word and it's almost in every language known it's a miracle but the greater miracle is not just to be in awe of our God in His salvation and redemption and the display of His glory through all of the signs and wonders, the fact that He brought Lazarus from the dead, the fact that He actually parted the sea, the fact that all this stuff exists by His pleasure, that He spoke it into being. 
That's amazing, but the greater all for the body of Christ is when we get together with no affinity but Christ, with no conditions but that which God has promised us in Christ, and we are able to love one another that the world says, I want that. They want the benefits of it. See, that's what said, that favor with all people. See, the church is not supposed to be antagonistic, ever. We are supposed to be hated for our gentle, loving stand in a crooked generation. And the most crooked generation that we live in today are the religious people. Not the lost. (laughs) A fish that swims is not to be Concern, that shouldn't concern you. It's not odd. A sinner that sins is not odd. A self-righteous person is odd. That's a wicked thing that walks on two legs. It's demonic. When we think we're better than others because we don't do this, we are literally mimicking the very rebuke of condemnation that Jesus spoke in that parable. Be careful. We should be in awe with the Word of God. We should be in awe with the gathering. We should be in awe with the truth. And the Spirit of God brings us together. And all who believed were together had all things in common. Should be no naked person in the church unless we're all naked. Hungry unless we're all hungry. Homeless unless we're all homeless. Should never be like that. And the responsibilities that we have to one another and to the church as a whole. And we're going to talk about those as God opens his word to us. And one of those things, as we see here in the way of material possessions, some people were selling their possessions. They weren't selling their possessions unto homelessness, but they were selling their possessions in order to turn them around so that other people may have their needs met. And then daily, 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 they did this. Now, this isn't prescriptive in the sense that this is commanded of us. This is what they did because it's what they were used to doing. Daily, they attended the temple together. Now, they've been attending the temple, right? The temple was used in the outer courts and places like that like a mall. Anybody could go in there, Jew, Gentile, you could do business, you could meet, you could have. It's the coffee shops of first century, if I could say it loosely in in humor. But they met there because it was a good place to meet. And they did so also in their homes. Okay, we've learned a little bit today. Um, Hey, you six want to go to my house? I mean, my living room seats eight, comfortably. Five more chairs would put us at a baker's dozen. Five more would be a crowd. Five more would be a nightmare. And we've had more than that. 3,000 people don't fit in one house, folks. All the saints within 100 square miles of our center wouldn't fit in this building 
We break bread in our homes as we're able. In other words, we're helping feed each other. Where they receive their food, and here's the point of this, of this record. They receive their food with gladness and with generous hearts. You know what? That doesn't include entitlement. You know what we're entitled to? Without grace, death. It's what we deserve. It is the wage that we have already earned. It is a law that we must be paid for that which we earn. That which we earn for that we work for. So, when we receive the grace of God and the unity of the Spirit and the truth of the gospel by the Spirit of God Himself, when we come together, we do so with generous hearts and with gladness. And beloved, you know that's the hardest thing to do. But true fellowship is meeting needs, being together in the learning of the Scripture with gladness. With generous hearts. Why? Because if the King of glory gave you all His riches, would you not be generous? Well, He did. He did. And so then the verse 47, it shows us there that in the same sentence, they were praising God. The outflow of grace is worship. The outflow of knowing the glory of God in Christ, the riches of the gospel, is worship. Praising Him. Thanking Him. Excited about... And what is excitement? It's a state of mind. It's not... Some people get excited and they scream and dance. Some people get excited and they just have an inner smile that's not visible on their face. It doesn't erase the pain of life. It doesn't make everything right. Fellowship isn't going to fix all the problems. If we're all hungry and sick and dying, we're all going to be hungry and sick and dying with gladness. And that's not giddiness. Like Peter would say, sometimes it's joy that is inexpressible. Because our eyes are on that which is true fellowship, which is the point of the church. Having fellowship is because God came down from glory and created a body for Himself. And took on the fullness and the trueness of humanity in order that He might have fellowship with His people in a true, judicial, holy intimacy. So that's what being the church is all about. And beloved, it's, it's not an option. It's not a choice we make. It's who we are, you know? And back to the fish. When we look at a fish that's out of the water with very few variants of, of, of biology, most fish die. All believers die. When they disobey the prescribed, joy-filled promises of Christ. Sometimes fellowship is nothing but mourning. And I could go all through Scripture. I mean, I could go through the entire... I literally could start right now and go through every letter and point out hundreds of verses about how we ought to relate to one another. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
But as Paul would say, do not neglect the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but gather together as often as you can. Gather together that you might what? Encourage one another. In what? Everything. That's hard, isn't it? Because we, we find safety in affinity. We find safety in culture. We find safety in ideologies. We find safety in our philosophies. We find safety in our politics. We find safety in our, in, in, in our grievances. Because we find affinity there. But, beloved, the church has no room for that. We don't have room because we're diverse. There is no Christian politics. There's no such thing. I don't care how many books have been written on it. It's, it's hogwash. There is, no, there is no Christian education. I mean, I remember thinking that, you know, home education, that was God's way. No? Huh? Not necessarily. Praise be to God when we can. And it would be a lot easier just to ship them off. <laughs> but praise be to God no matter what we choose to do. We don't burden each other. You see what I'm saying? Just little things that, that, that Robin and I have dealt with through the years. Grinding your own wheat. Wearing certain types of clothes. Not having pictures of family on the wall. Silly stuff, isn't it? We haven't dealt with that one. But. So we get together and we praise God together. And when we do these things, God's Joy becomes ours in the midst of anything. Our affinity is the gospel and its joy-filled power. Our affinity is the patience of Christ and the mind of Christ who is long-suffering forever with his people. Isn't that funny? We have a limit, don't we? I'm had it. I've had it. And it always gets bigger, doesn't it? I've had it. I've had it up to here. This was my limit. You crossed it. Where is God's limit? It is no limit in patience for his people. Temporally, absolutely. We see it all the way in Scripture. God has a purpose and a timing and an eternal decree, and it will all come to pass as he sees fit for our good and for our joy and for his name. But, beloved, we've got to have patience with each other. We've got to go to Ephesians and learn to speak the truth in love. Not about molding each other to look like we want each other to look, but making sure that everyone is encouraged to stay the task. And that when we do that which God has called us to, God will get to the what they call the get-tos. He will get to this, and He will get to that, and He will get to that in His timing. And we aren't the ones who are supposed to press and make anybody else look like we think they ought to look in the timing that we think they ought to look. That's fellowship. Patiently riding this world together in the gospel, loving one another, worshiping, coming to the Lord's day, encouraging each other not to neglect it because through it and through our relationships, from this point, every single week, will come great and mighty works and wonders. 
And when Jesus says, you will do greater works than these, we know the initial context there is the fact that the apostles would continue in the apostolic ministry of Christ. And God would do mighty things. And then in being the church that is devoted to this teaching and to live it out. It's not, the teaching is not just for us to know about it. The teaching is for us to do it. God gave the apostles and the prophets and the teachers and the pastors and the overseers in order to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. And that's the book of James. That's the letter that James sent to the Jews in the dysphoria. That, 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 that's the point. You are, you are the beloved. You are the elect, but you are, you're not doing anything. You're not living correctly. You are not working. Faith without works is a dead faith. Does it mean that you're what? You're an unbeliever? No. Does it mean you're lost? No. It just means you're worthless. Let me leave you with some thoughts. Peter writes some letters to the church. And in his second, his second epistle, he starts in verse 2. He says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Is self-control a cognitive thing that you've learned about, or is self-control something that you do? With steadfastness, is steadfastness a theory that you can posit on, or is it something that you do? And steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly is affection this poetic thing that we opine over, or is affection something that we do? And brotherly affection with love, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, okay, you understand the gospel, beloved, but when we aren't living the gospel according to God's commands, we're worthless. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't he? We're just worthless. It's like the clanging cymbal in the middle of a song. It doesn't fit. Clang, clang, clang. Gotta get more cowbell stuff. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten, not that he's lost it, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, forgotten that he was regenerated, forgotten that he was saved, redeemed. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided you an interest into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus. These aren't conditions unto eternal life. In other words, in this path, living this life as the church, we are working out our salvation, trusting fully in the sovereignty of God only, but living out in obedience and patience and love and fellowship until the day we enter into heaven. It's very simple. 
Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and you're established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I am alive in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that I will soon die, as your Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. And that is the writing of this letter. Beloved, we're here today to be reminded about our gospel, our Savior, and His glory. And be reminded and taught and instructed and exhorted to live it out. And I said dysphoria instead of dyspersia. That just hit me. Okay. That word didn't feel right on my tongue. Dispersion. Let's pray. Father, we are glad that we are no longer aliens. We are no longer lost. We are no longer, we are aliens, but we're no longer far away. You have brought us near by the blood of Christ. You have taught us who you are. You've given us by your spirit the truth of the gospel and caused us to change our thinking and to believe in the gospel. Lord, you've caused us to see all of the other ways in which we thought were life are not. You've given us that gift of repentance through faith. Father, you have granted us understanding. So help us to stay simple in the economy of grace, to know that your work and your word establishes all your power for your people, that your promises and purposes for us on this earth are clearly laid out. And so as we come to the close of our service, as we take the table together, Lord, let us truly take it together to taste and see that you are good, to remember that Christ was given in the flesh for us and that one day we will be together without sin, without sickness, without sorrow, because we will be with our Savior as one body forever beholding His face. Until that day, Lord, we thank You for the teaching of Your Word and for Your patience and for Your love for us. In Christ we pray. Amen.